Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. The scripture reading for this Sunday is from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, we are in a series called The Advent Conspiracy where we're trying to use this season for a different purpose than what is normal. When I was in the first year of marriage, I realized a lot about myself. For those uh, of us who have gone through this experience, the first year of marriage is like a mirror. You think you're going to get to know the other person really well? No, you're getting to know yourself very well. One of the things I realized is that I am not a gift giver. It doesn't come naturally for me. And I'm married into a family of gift givers. In Jen's family, there's no such thing as a birthday. It's a birth month. It's just a, just a, just a never-ending parade of gifts. The whole month belongs to you. It's an amazing thing. And so for me, I got married as family. I go, oh my gosh, this is, this is not how I am. And so I kind of, I might be like some of you in this room where I approach December with trepidation. I, I go, I know I need to buy a lot of gifts and try to be thoughtful, but this is not going to come naturally for me. I treat, honestly, I treat it kind of like changing the oil in my car. I know I need to do this. I just try to push it off as long as possible. And see if I can just, you know, take care of two things at the same time. It's just, and the worst part about it is I will be tempted to buy a subpar gift just for the gratification of getting it off my list. Can I just share that? I, I will buy a gift I know won't be really meaningful, but you know what's meaningful? is not having to think about it again. And uh, this past year, I had an experience of this. Uh, a friend jokingly told me that he knocked out six people's gifts by one item. And all of a sudden my eyes I were open like, what did you give him? And he said, it's something called a bug assault. Alright, so follow me here. This is a bug assault. Uh, it is a gun that uses table salt to kill bugs. 
So that always frequent problem of having a fly nearby that you don't want to swat, you instead, you know, could just shoot with a bunch of salt, this is your solution. And you also have to use it in a place where you don't mind a bunch of salt going everywhere, right? Because that happens all the time. Or if you want to, you know, spice up your Super Bowl party, you know? Got chips and we need a little more salt? Don't worry. How ridiculous is that? And notice this is 2.0. We've made improvements. More power, less salt. So ridiculous. So frivolous was this idea that I immediately uh, bought one. I bought it for my brother-in-law. He's like a guy's guy. I was like, oh, you'd appreciate that. I bought it for him and I called up his wife, Tiffany. I was like, Tiffany, I got Brian the Dust gift. It's this gun with salt that kills bugs. And she's like, he already has one. <laughs> so then I bought, and then I was like, well, who else can I just give this to? My brother. And so I give, he's not a guy's guy, but there he is. <laughs> he was super excited, super excited about this gift. Uh, in his book, Scroogeonomics, a, an economist named Joel Waldenfogel, and if your last name is Waldenfogel, you would write something called Scroogeonomics. Uh, Joel Waldenfogel, he shares some pretty staggering statistics. Out of all the gift giving that happens during the season, 18% of the gifts that are received are undesired. A bunch of bug assaults, socks and ties, things that you just, another candle, you know? These are the things that you don't really want it that someone gave you. The, the problem with this number is that 18% equals $12 billion with a B, billion dollars. Just to put it in context, Rwanda's gross domestic product is $8 billion. So $12 billion of bug assaults, and, and this is what we do with this season. To make things worse, uh, this is another thing that he noticed and noted, is that after the holidays are given, a third of holiday gifts aren't paid for two months later. So we're doing all this gift giving on credit, hoping that we've checked a, checked a box, the other person might feel better about it, and we've left the season in debt. So today's message is not about abandoning gift giving. It's actually about how we can take it to the next level. How can we give better gifts? How can we give more? Last week, Ted shared a great message about spending less that we are going to spend less in this season so that this week we can talk about giving more. And buried within this Christmas story is an incredible, powerful example of what it might mean to give more. The example that I'd like for us to consider today is the example of the Magi. So I'm going to, if you allow me, I'm going to retell the story of the Magi, coloring in some details to kind of make it more of a, a true vivid story for us. And then we're going to end by thinking about how their example can help us in understanding what it might mean to give more. These magi or these wise men, their story begins far, far, far away from the manger scene that, that we have pictured in our minds. Uh, they were believed to, to originate in, in Persia or Babylon. These, these magi were scholars. They're highly educated. Specifically, they were educated in philosophy, in the world religions, in astronomy. And then one evening, one of these magi were outside, and he noticed something. Something stood out to him. And he dropped all of his plans that evening and went to his friend's house, grabbed him by the sleeve, went to another friend's house, grabbed him by the sleeve, went outside without a word and pointed up there. And the three of them noticed something that anyone might not notice. Something was jumping out to them. 
the heavens were declaring something to them. It was an incredible thing. It was a star over in the west. No one else would notice. In their tradition, they believed that whenever a king, a significant king was born, stars in the heavens would notify the universe. They would tell of this king's birth. And so for them, they see this, and they immediately think, I wonder who was born. I wonder what king and what kingdom this person was born in. And so they looked at all of the different nations in the West, and they sat down, and they gathered together, well, there's this nation, there's this people group. And then one of them said, what about Israel? What's interesting in Persian Babylon is that the, Is- the Israelites were taken in captivity, and they were exiled there in that land. So perhaps they had access to their scriptures, and they could read the prophecies. And so they started unrolling these scrolls, and they were talking about who is Israel waiting for? What king have they been awaiting? And they started reading passages like this in Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Then you will look and be radiant. Your hearts will throb and swell with joy. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. To the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. And after reading these passages, the Magi went back out underneath the stars. They laid down and they talked about the heaven's glory. They talked about the prophecy, what it might be saying. And the most Weasley of the Magi said, you know we got to go. You, 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 know, you know we're going to have to go and see. Perhaps, perhaps not only had a king been born, but perhaps this prophecy about nations coming to praise What if that was speaking of us? So this was no small decision. This journey was estimated to be around six to 800 miles. And there's no, you know, Ford SUV that they're jumping in. Six to 800 miles. It would take several months for them to get there. And this journey would also be costly financially. But they had entered into a season of advent, of waiting, of expecting, of hoping, of seeing this arrival of the king. And after a long trip, they arrived back to Israel and they went to wherever people expected a new king to be born. They went to Jerusalem. And as they entered into the city gates, they stood out. The Magi and their posse, their caravan, they would have stood out to anyone. Market vendors stopped what they were doing to see these men walk in. Kids pulled on their parents' Uh, clothes and pointed and asked, who is that? And then finally, a respected older individual from Jerusalem went up to the Magi and said, what brings you to Jerusalem? And they said, in verse 2, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And this older man's his face went from confusion to fear. And he said to them, there's, there's no new king. There's no new king, especially no, no new king of the Jews. There's only Herod. And this man scurried away. After this encounter, 
Rumors started swirling around Jerusalem of why these magi were here. And these magi, they, they were surprised more than anyone else. Where's the celebration? Where's the new king? Why the look of fear? And as these rumors started swirling around, Magi asked where is a religious leader, a Pharisee. Of course, they would know. So they found a Pharisee and said, where's, where's the new king? And the Pharisee pulled him aside and whispered, said, there is no new king. You think that you know that there's a new king because of the scriptures? Those are our scriptures. We know how to translate them. We know what, what, what we were waiting for, not you. Stop this pursuit and go back home. Or else you'll upset Herod. What these Magi's didn't know is that Herod, the king there, he was an incredibly violent man. He had already killed most of his family just because he was afraid that they might try to overthrow him. He was murderous beyond measure. And Herod's favorite title, can anyone guess? King of the Jews. So the news of this caravan would have serious repercussions. It would just ratchet up the suspicion and the violence there. That is why in verse 3, it said, when King Herod heard that this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When the king's disturbed, the people will be. So Herod called together the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, and asked them, what do your scriptures say about your Messiah? This is what they say in verse 5. In Bethlehem, they will, he will be born in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is the, what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Bethlehem? Really? See, Bethlehem was like the sticks. It was like Podunkville. Bethlehem has one flashing light. It doesn't even have a dairy queen. There's nothing in Bethlehem, especially the birth of the Messiah. So Herod was confused. In verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them exactly the time the star had appeared. When was the star? When did you find the star? How long ago was that? And he, Herod, sent the Magi to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully this child, and as soon as you find him, report it to me so that I might go and worship him. And at that, when he said, worship him, everyone, all the servants in the room stopped what they were doing. The Magi's confusion from this moment increased. Was their trip all in vain? Months of a journey wasted? Was this a mistake? They were the outsiders. Why were they being treated like the experts? Why weren't Israel's own people looking for their Savior? Why wasn't God's people already rejoicing? How come this nation stopped being a people of Advent? The Magi left the lights and noise of Jerusalem and they started going towards Bethlehem in confusion and doubt and curiosity. But God showed up. Verse 9. They went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. You see, there's something really important, I think, in the spiritual life about curiosity. It's the second most important characteristic, I think, in the Christian life behind gratitude. Curiosity is an incredibly important thing. The reason why is that when we are people who are seeking 
and questioning and searching for truth, seeking out to find God. God loves it. You know why? God loves to be found. God is always present, always here. And the question is whether or not we are seeking him, if we're searching him. And would the Magi's joy be ever so bright had they just gone around the corner and found Messiah? They went to great lengths. Their curiosity was so powerful. They went to great lengths in months and months of a dream. And their joy lit up because they were willing to seek after God. Which leads me to question my own self. How much curiosity do I have of God? How much do I seek God in my life? The same star that had declared the birth months and months ago was already leading them. God wasn't going to abandon them here. So in the cool of the evening, these magi, they followed this star and it just rested there above this humble and simple home. Not like the palaces that they had imagined. There's no regal welcome. There's no soldiers guarding the door. Just a humble home. And so when the Magi, the caravan, went outside this home, the noise of them was enough to stir Mary and Joseph inside, enough to when they knocked the door, took a while for them to open. The Magi entered this simple home. Their eyes were darting around. Where would this child be? And there in the corner, behind the mother, was the cooing of a baby. So they asked, could we see? Could we see this child? And there... As Mary turned and showed them Jesus, joy bursted into their hearts and souls, their eyes glistened with joys of tear. Their season of waiting and seeking had not been in ruin. There he is. This small and vulnerable Messiah, the ones that the universe is declaring, humbly right there, in his mother's hands, in his mother's arms. But now the Magi, it was their turn to finish their task. Remember the prophecy in Persia? The wealth on the seas will be brought to you, to the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camel will cover your land, bearing gold and frankincense, which is a type of incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. This was the Magi's time to give, to give in worship, to give in praise. This was their time to give more, the Magi turned their attention from the baby now to the parents, and the first Magi give, gave Joseph some gold. And Joseph's eyes lit up as he held the treasure that this gold was, how, it, how precious this gold would be. The second Magi turned to Joseph and gave frankincense. And at the smell of the, of the frankincense, Mary and Joseph looked at each other and they began to smile. Frankincense was an incense used in worship. For Mary and for Joseph, what this smell resembled is that the nations were there to worship their son, Jesus. The son that the angels had come to declare would be the Messiah. And so they delighted at this. But then there's the third Magi. And with a somber face, he turned to Mary and gave her murmur. And Mary's face went to, from delight to painful acceptance. Myrrh was used in embalming bodies before they were buried. Myrrh is not a gift I would recommend at any baby shower you go to. But here, for this moment, this was the gift that was needed to be given. 
And as Mary held that, it was like a sword had pierced her soul. Perhaps as the Magi were studying the prophecy and finding out more about this Messiah, they also knew that not only would a Messiah be born to Israel, but he would be their Savior through his own sacrifice. And so it makes sense for them to bring myrrh as this gift. And after a time of soaking in this moment, the Magi looked at each other, and with silence and a smirk, they left the house, turning east, returning home. But they did so differently. Not only did they go a different route to not, uh, to not threaten Herod, but they went a different route because they were changed people, I believe. It ended with them giving more. I share this story to put in context how we could give more as a people. What if we don't give this season to knock off our to-do list, but what if we conspire to enter a story like, like the Magi's? What if we reflect a different type of story? I actually believe the Magi's gift can frame how we can give differently. There's three different ways in which we find the Magi giving. First, they gave with particularity. Each gift had its purpose. For the Magi to give more, they had to be students. They had to be students of the prophecy. And for us, for us to give with, purpose, with being purposeful, we have to be students of the people around us. I know some, some families, they, they give their kid three different gifts each season. I'm glad the kids are not here because they'd be protesting this. But they are given three different gifts each Christmas season, all with different needs for a physical need, maybe a piece of clothing, for an emotional need. What would delight them this year? And then for a spiritual need, what, what would allow this person to flourish in their spiritual life? It might be uh, a devotional book. Maybe it's a mission trip that they've been wanting to go to. Maybe that's how we could give. So instead of rushing off to Amazon to buy out of convenience, what if we stop and study the people around us? What would cause them to flourish? And how could this Christmas season, how could I give with particularity? The second, they gave relationally. This is the season for us to give more of our time and our presence. And that's hard because the undercurrent that is around Christmas is we're going to get more busy, we're going to be more distracted, we're going to be more half-present than any other time. But what if this, in this season we give of our relationship? The Magi, they had wealth. They could have sent a delegation to go to Israel to find this king to give these gifts. But that wasn't enough for them. They wanted to be there. They wanted to see this king face to face. I heard a, a pastor share their church was doing the same series. And I love this example. A son gave his father a bag of coffee, like a really good coffee. But he gave the coffee with a stipulation. The only time that you can drink this coffee is when you and I are sitting down together. I, I don't know you well enough, Dad. There's stories that I've never asked you. And so I want this bag of coffee to be my chance to stop and for you just to tell me stories. What a beautiful gift of a relationship. So for us, we should give, in our, this season, we should give more of our time, our laughter, our stories, to, to be more present with one another. And finally, the Magi give with redemptive purpose. For us, truly to give in the spirit of Christmas means we have to give with Jesus in mind. And then just a little warning, I, I might step on some toes here, just to just kind of warn you. But when I look back at my own life, and I look around our own family's traditions we're already starting in my environment, it seems as if we treat Christmas like our own birthday. Like this is where we're allowed to ratchet up our own materialism and expectations and consumerism. We're okay with doing that. I just want to remind us all that this is not our birthday. 
This is Christ. So doesn't it only make sense for us to give with Christ in mind? Doesn't it only make sense that out of all the gifts that we give in this season, that Jesus gets our biggest and our best? Doesn't it only make sense as we give for us to look for opportunities to bless Jesus? And I know some of us were saying, how in the world do we give something to Jesus? How do we do that? Well, we talked the first week about worship. I think God wants our worship. And we can give, just like Chusa did, just a gifts of, gift of worship. But there's another way in which we can give. And Jesus himself said this in Matthew 25, 35 and 36. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit, visit me. What you just did and what you're doing in your gifts to the children of Rwanda blesses Jesus. Not indirectly, but in a mysterious way, it, directs, it directly blesses and gives to Jesus. It's more than just being a nice person. It's more than just being generous. It's more than just feeding kids. Jesus has uniquely chosen to identify with the hungry of this world. So our acts of compassion and grace is our worship. It is our way of worshiping Jesus. And the reason why we give more in this season, it's not only because the Magi did this, but it's because of who Jesus is. We respond to what Jesus has already done. Jesus gave with particularity. He walked through this world knowing people's needs and he blessed them uniquely. For some people it was a touch, for some people it was a word, for some people it was a physical need. And Jesus might be looking at you and saying, I know your needs and I want to give something to you if you're willing to seek it out, if you're willing to find it. Jesus gave relationally. What Christmas reminds us is how serious God is about you having a life with him. Jesus was a friend of the sinner. Jesus wants to give you the gift of undeserved relationship with him this season. And finally, Jesus gave with redemptive purpose. That myrrh that was given to Jesus as an infant. As Jesus laid there, it was a foreshadowing of the extent that Jesus was willing to go to give to this world. He gave of himself and ultimately gave of his life on the cross so that for once and for all, we could be with him. So that the love of Christ could be marked all throughout our life and we could have a new life with him forever. Friends, that is what Christmas really is about. That's the conspiracy that Jesus started 2,000 years ago. And that's the invitation for us here and now. Let us join Jesus by giving more of ourselves this season.